Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast. This is Bill Kanaski with Courtroom Sciences, uh, summer edition of the podcast. Uh, after a little bit of time off, a much needed uh, break, uh, even Joe Rogan's off this week. So I figured, you know, got to take when you're a successful podcast, you, you, you got to take breaks. You know, I'm going to start with my rant. I'm going, I'm going right into the rant this morning. This one's about aging aging i just turned 49 years old and for whatever and i'm in really good shape but for whatever reason i decided this week i'm gonna go back 15 years and i'm gonna i'm gonna go to the gym and i'm gonna do squats i'm going to the actual not the smith machine not the leg we're talking the squat rack let's just say after two episodes of that um i'm walking a little funny uh there's a tremendous amount of pain uh i my body is telling me, okay, what, what in the world do you think you're doing? Um, so I may have to adjust that going forward, but yes, aging sucks. And, uh, but you got to stay in shape, stay in shape, take care of yourself. Maybe once you start pushing 50, maybe the squat rack is not such a good idea. Special guest today. Very good friend, uh, up in Minneapolis, Nick Roush. Nick, how you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me on bill. Um, like, so is this the time up in your air? Like you get like what, 60 days of nice weather. Is that, is that pretty much what it is? You know, it's interesting. I, I'm originally from Des Moines, Iowa. And, and when I followed my wife up here, you wouldn't think that it'd be a, a difference in the change of weather, but I can assure you that it is. So we're right in the, the sweet spot right now. We actually, uh, for the first time, I think in a few decades, we actually had a hundred degree weather last week in the month of June, which is like unheard of in the state wow. of Minnesota. So it's, uh, it's starting to heat up, but once we get to the end of August, uh, the temperatures start going back down. Yeah. Well, you don't, you don't have to shovel heat and humidity. You don't have to shovel <laughs> it. So that saves your back too. Uh, Nick, you've been on the show before, but but just you know, give our audience just a little rundown of who you are, your firm, and, and what your practice is like. Sure. Yeah. First of all, I, I, I want to say it's just a great honor to be on the podcast. I'm a, a huge fan of the podcast. I, I listen Thank every you. time there's a new episode. And, um, all of these topics are timely for, for litigators who are out you know, in the courtroom trying cases, especially with the rise in nuclear verdicts and social inflation that has come about. So yeah. huge supporter of this podcast and everybody on it. I know a lot of the attorneys and other folks you've had on. So I'm just privileged to, to be here and, and to have a couple minutes with you today. But we yeah, love so having my, you. Love having you. I, my, my name is Nick Rausch. I'm an attorney at the Larson King Law Firm in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, uh, majority of my practice focuses on uh, trucking and transportation logistics, uh, products liability litigation, uh, and also uh, mostly wrongful death and also a little bit of uh, ERISA and insurance coverage work. So all the way across the board, but um, ha happy to jump on and, and, and focus on these topics because I think they bleed into a lot of different industries right now, especially with the way that some yeah. of the jury rooms are going. Yeah, the war. Um, yeah, now, again, I hesitate to say post-COVID. I think it's post-COVID. Um, but I mean, the war, you know, during COVID, I mean, the war planning was happening on the other side and the war has started. And um, I've seen plenty of nuclear verdicts uh, out there. It seems like uh, the breakdown of those is pretty much the same old story. Um, cases not being worked up uh, appropriately early. Um, mm -hmm. 
plaintiff's counsel getting the early lead on the scoreboard, uh, approaching mediation, a failure to resolve because you're down by six touchdowns at halftime. And, um, you know, you, you, you go to trial and, and the cards are really stacked against you. And that's unfortunate. On the other hand, um, and I'm happy to say this, we have been part of dozens and dozens of cases in which nuclear verdicts have been avoided. Uh, we've been able to resolve matters, but man, the, the, the amount of um, effort and work and energy that has to be put up front in those cases is, is substantial. And, and I know that you know that. And we have several topics to talk about today. Now, uh, we do want to talk a little uh, reptile, uh, particularly early in, in, in cases. And we're talking super early in cases, which I want you to discuss in some of your experiences. But I got to get your first reaction to this because I know you know about it, but we haven't talked about it. The reptile rebranding. They have dumped the name reptile. They, they, they had a big falling out. They had, there's still litigation going uh, over that. But yeah, if you, if you try to Google reptile and find a, you're not going to find any websites with uh, uh, reptile. It's, it's, it's all changed. What, what are your thoughts on the, uh, the rebranding efforts of the reptile theory? Well, they are. And, you know, the funny thing that you and I have discussed too is you know, the reptile has been around for, for decades, right? Yeah. I mean, this isn't really a, a new topic. I, I suppose once the, um, once the book by Ball, I think it is, came out, you know, everything kind of took its own little term. And then we started to use that terminology throughout. And so now I think at the very beginning, right, I think what we started to see is that there is a large effort of collaboration in the plaintiff's bar between yeah. the sharing of not just experts and stuff we do day to day, but also with transcripts and styles of questions and reptile theory. And so now, whether they're catching on to our, you know, the defense bar's efforts to um, abate and defend against those tactics, and maybe they're trying to steer away from it. The reality is, is I'd like to believe, at least in the time that I've been practicing, I think the defense bar has evolved in the fact that we are now working more towards a concerted effort to collaborate with each other and yep. find transcripts and adequately prepare safety reps, not just for the case that you're handling, but for subsequent cases that maybe additional firms or other defense counsel will end up taking on. And so I, I think there is a, a change in that narrative. Um, but, you know, certainly with, with all of us, all of us keep track of what the other side is doing, what we're not yeah. doing, how we can make it better. And so it's, it's interesting that they're trying to rebrand it, but I, I don't know if that's really working so well. Yeah, maybe not the rebranding, but the, the methodology uh, is still out there. So before before we jump into that, you just brought up a good point, but you know, with safety reps, but particularly um, corporate reps, this is a topic that does yeah. not get brought up nearly enough. And I don't think people under, well, I, I don't think the corporations understand. I know you understand, attorneys understand, um, but the damage that can be done, I mean, a corporate rep deposition, that stays with that corporate that corporate rep forever, correct? And subsequent litigation. Can you talk about how de devastating that can be if you have an unprepared or untrained corporate rep? And then in the next 10 lawsuits, that deposition is going to be used um, against them. Right. You know, in, in, it varies in industry, right? But I would say for, if you are in a, a very I, I, I hate to use long-term words because I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but if you're in a very litigious field, right? If you're, whether it's trucking or whether it's products liability, or if you are a, a 
consumer in the market and you are providing services that would lead you down the road to litigation, um, it can be very damaging. And, and you know, the, I think the thing that um, a few of my colleagues have seen up here in Minnesota, at least, is that not only are plaintiff's attorneys seeking the depositions of a corporate rep to talk about the specific topics that may bind the company as a whole, they're also looking to take the depositions of quote unquote fact witnesses within the company who may have certain knowledge yeah. on things. And that can also be damaging, right? If a plaintiff's attorney comes into a case and can depose 30 to 40 witnesses sometimes on, on the, the bad end, that can bind not only those witnesses, it can bind the company if they're there for a long time and they get sued again, all that stuff can come up. And so it it is a big issue. It's something that at least on our end, we start to think about right when we get the case in, in terms of how could this potentially go in the future? What topics are going to come up? Yeah. Who within the company is going to be the one that we are going to say could, could answer for the corporate rep topics, but may also be a fact witness. And I think that's a topic that it, it, I, you, I think you touched on it earlier. It's something that needs to be thought about I, as early as possible, right? I think yeah. early claim evaluation is becoming a huge topic for carriers across the nation. And it whether is. it's a 30 or 60 day evaluation or a 90 day evaluation. And yeah. the reason why is because of this growing nature of, we want to know if we go down the line here, what's this going to look like? How how many depositions are there going to be? Uh, who are we going to put up? What are your thoughts, Nick and Steve, about yeah. who could be deposed, whether or not they'd be a good witness? Those are all things that are starting to be assessed at the very early stages. Yeah. And um, I've taken, uh, um, this is to no surprise, Nick, um, I've taken a little criticism lately uh, from a few people uh, that are anonymous because they're scared. <laughs> they're scared to call me about directly that I, I bash the insurance industry the insurance defense industry to I'm not bashing anybody, number one, but they, they do have a role uh, here. And all too often, particularly in these nuclear verdicts, I'm hearing from trial attorneys, you know, I warned them two years ago, right? I warned them, they disagreed with me. They want to give me the weaponry, you know, necessary to really fight this case early. And so I, I see some of that changing for the, for the positive, but until, until that really changes, I think, I, I think um, made defense counsel may be put in, into a tough spot. Let's jump into reptile. Tell me about reptile. We're talking like super early in cases, super early in, in cases, what your um, experience has been, because I, I think that the well-seasoned, well-trained reptile attorney um, and the way that they are trained, we have their training materials. We, we know what they're, what they're doing. Uh, they're they're going to start that that process really early. T tell me about your experiences with, with, with that. You know, we're seeing it as early as the initial communications with plan attorneys, right? Whether yep. it's that initial phone call or it's at the initial inspection where you're going to look at either the equipment or the truck. Uh, we're seeing concerted efforts and whether that's just sound bites that have been repeatedly played on the plaintiff's bar that are now becoming part of dialogue before we even get to the pleading and discovery stage. Uh, but it's, it's becoming a part of that active dialogue about claims. And then it bleeds over into not just the complaint that we're seeing, but also in initial disclosures and in um, uh, interrogatories and requests for production. And I think that that not only is it worthy of definitely substantive objections that you have to pose, 
but it may also be a source of initial involvement of the court to go and say, listen, judge, we, we see where this is going. And we just want to get out ahead of it that this isn't even close to the standard that's going to be sure. applied or the way that you are going to instruct the jury in eight months on this case. And so we'd like there to be some precautions in place, especially when we haven't even got the depositions yet. They've already played their hand on how this is going to go. Yeah. But what I would say on that is, you know, if, if you do feel a little bit of pressure on that, um, it's never too early to involve the court. And, and there's, there's case law out there in a lot of jurisdictions about reptile, whether it's to preclude questioning of reptile, to exclude certain questioning of lay witnesses and fact witnesses, and just in general. And I, I, it, it, to anyone, I, I would say, don't be afraid to involve the court. If you feel that this is gonna be repetitive and abusive in nature, um, if you can get out ahead of it as soon as you can with the judge, I think they, they appreciate that. They certainly know how litigation goes and they know about the, the, the recent trends in reptile. Yeah. Yeah. Um, early intervention, we always say as the best and to be, to be aggressive. And I mean, you know, what do you really have to have to lose? Right. Um, talk to us about now you've, you've published uh, on the concept of anchoring you and your, your, your DRI paper is fantastic. Um, I still think it's a misunderstood uh, psychological, um, concept. Uh, so if you could talk to us a little about that, but also talk to us about how, while it's obviously used in the courtroom and the whole concept of counter anchoring by the defense, um, you don't have to wait for the courtroom to use it, do you? No, you don't. And, and you know, I, I think it is a misconception on that topic. And I, now, for the record, I'm, I'm just picking up where a lot of the professionals like you and other people in the field have left off. But, um, you know, it's it's a concept. I think a lot of us as trial attorneys, we come in and we think, OK, well, let's have an anchoring strategy for trial because we know the, the number they're going to have. Let's make sure we have a counter anchor or a reference point that we can give the jury and let's make sure we weave it in and out of our trial strategy. That That is kind of how this concept initially developed. But the point that I've expressed and advocated for is you know, anchoring can start as early as, again, that initial conversation with yeah. plaintiff's counsel um, in terms of your views on liability, your, your views and worthiness. And not only does it have a psychological effect on them, they may be doing the opposite to you <laughs> from the very beginning, yeah. right? I mean, how many times have we seen demand letters that tell you everything wrong with your case and want the limits of the policy? That's an anchor. Yeah. immediately out of a case. And so it's about the fact that you don't have to be on the courthouse steps to start thinking about anchoring. It should be something that should be a part of your litigation strategy from the very beginning. And if you're able to express that point of view, not only is it helpful in early claim maybe resolution or discussions with plaintiff's counsel, it can also be a part of your discovery strategy and eventually at mediation to get that far. What has been your um, either success or maybe struggles, it's probably a mixture, of discussing that strategy with, um, with clients? Because uh, again, I, I think attorneys struggle enough with psychological concepts as it is. Claims people are going to be no better, may, maybe even a little bit, um, maybe even more difficulty. Um, did, 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 are they grasping this strategy? They are. And I think the more that's published out there and written about it and presented on, I think they're more aware of the psychological topics that we're using. You know, the, the reality is just like the reptile. Um, anchoring isn't a new concept, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's stuff that's been taught at law firms and in trial academies for years. And so it's just about 
making sure that that's an active point of your strategy and that you're expressing that to your clients that, listen, you know, we're about to go to mediation in a month. I think it's worth to call this plaintiff's attorney just to kind of set some ground rules, but also set our expectations and our views of this case. Or talking with your client and saying, hey, you know, we just received a nasty letter and voicemail from this plaintiff's attorney. I really think it'd be worth him to call him back to give our counterpoints and to start anchoring him early so he knows that not only do we have defenses to this case, but we simply just don't view it as, you know, a $4 million, $5 million case. There, that can do wonders in terms of not only just early claim resolution, but it can also right, set the floor for how you're going to defend this case and can give some perspective to the other side, whether it's your initial perspective or if it's an anchoring perspective to help in, in a, a potential claim resolution. And part, and part of, I mean, I'm assuming um, you're the attorney, I'm assuming part of that uh, of the of the early anchoring, getting uh, numbers out there is, uh, I'm assuming you, you want to have an impact on the actual plaintiff in the case. I mean, I think it's difficult for you know, a plaintiff, um, you know, they're angry or they're upset um, for them to wait multiple years to start hearing about resolution or, or possible figures. Um, we have, we've been involved in several cases um, in which we got a number out there early which ethically, well, again, I guess ethical boundaries um, and, and law um, are, deb are debatable, but ethically, a plaintiff, att a plaintiff attorney has to go back to their client saying, hey, they, they just threw out this number. Uh, is that also part of, of what you're doing is, is you, want, you want to get something out there to kind of send a kind of a back channel message to the, to the actual plaintiff in the case of, hey, you know, we're serious about resolving this and and, and we're not trying to draw this out. We're, we're, tr we're trying to give you money, right? Right. You know, the, the offer has to be, the offer has to be relayed. And the more and more you can bring in sound bites yeah. to that offer, right? Not just making it money. I, I have a mentor who said it should never just be money. It should be money and a message. And yeah. so it's developing that messaging with that plaintiff's attorney because he is going to go back just like in mediation, right? In mediation, we're always having the mediator come to our room to discuss what our position is and not just what our position on value is, but what are the main points that he can take into the other room to advocate for. And so it's, it is making sure that that's a clear message going back into the other room. Cause I think that sometimes is what drives change, especially when you can figure out who's driving the boat. Is this more focused on the plaintiff's attorney? Is it more from the client? I mean, that those are obviously other considerations as well. Yeah, I, I work with a, a, a nationally known attorney in the transportation industry. I'm not going to tell you his name. Um, he is known as um, a resolution slash settlement guru. I mean, they hired this guy to go talk to the plaintiff attorneys and say, hey, listen, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's come to an agreement here. He's wildly successful, um, and I want to run this by you and get your thoughts. You know, one of his tactics, which which I think is, I, I think it's ethical, I think it's right, and I, I I think it's quite brilliant, is oftentimes he will go to plaintiff's counsel and says, "Hey, we right now today, okay, and it's in the first ninety days of the case. We understand what your client's been through. Um, we want to hand him a check for fifty thousand dollars. You're going to get your money eventually." But they need that money now. They may need something. They may need house upgrades, whatever. But we want you. We'll, we'll take it off the back end of the settlement. 
Okay. We're going to give you, we want them to have something now because they're hurting right now. Okay. They're going to get their money probably in what a year, two years, but we want to give them something now to make a difference in their life. Cause we know that they're hurting. Um, that's been a really successful thing that I've seen. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an interesting proposal. And I would say, you know, it, it kind of comes along with um, early evaluation, right? In your discussions with yeah. your carrier and how comfortable they are in seeing, is this a large exposure? Do we need to early, in this case, be cooperative and try to show and establish some good faith with the other side that we are here to work together to find a resolution towards this? I could also see, you know, the opposite side of the fence too. And is, is that a way you want to start out? Is Will the other side be receptive to that and thinking that there's, you know, blood in the water, so to speak, and may not so take onto it. So I can see both sides of the fence. I could see potentially that may be uh, effective. I, I would say it also depends on, unfortunately, the, the plaintiff's attorney that you work with. Yeah. And you never know what you're going to, what you're, you're going to get there. Uh, I, I'm reading this article, which uh, I'm going to read you the title of it. Uh, Amygdala frontal connectivity during emotional nice. regulation. Uh, in other words, um, <laughs> This amygdala hijack concept, uh, particularly yes. with, you know, with 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 your witnesses, uh, this this could be the number one area of of my practice because number one I see, um, and it's not just with the fact witnesses. I think the particularly those uh, safety directors, the, the corporate representatives, um, boy, they want to fight. They want to fight. They they want to argue, and um, that can really. Um, blow up in their in their face and it's it's really easy to slip um you know in, into that fight or or or, or flight response uh pattern I'm, kind of, I'm, uh, I'm about to start a new paper because there's actually three responses we've only talked about fight or, or flight uh because those are the two that you you see a lot uh, yeah. there's a lot of science behind it and you see it with your witnesses all the time there's actually a third response which is called freeze <laughs> um, and that's typically where you get that, uh, I call it the yes train. The, they'll just say yes to everything the, right. to, you know, to, to get out of there, but, but back to, back to fight or flight, uh, you know, what, what types of, um, discussions are you having, particularly with your corporate rep? I talked to one yesterday on the phone and he's never, so he's going to trial in August. He's never testified at trial. He's at one deposition. He's the corporate rep. In the first 20 minutes of the conversation, he was telling me how, how a terrific witness he was <laughs> and how he's going to kick the plaintiff attorney's ass at, at, at trial. And, and he, he was telling me all of this stuff, which really terrified me, quite frankly, because that tells me um, a lot of overconfidence. But his whole point in the conversation, which I had to break this down and, and rebuild it, was it get he's convinced that he has to go out there and win the trial. Yeah. And I am, I am a very strong opinion that defense attorneys win trials. I don't think witnesses win trials. I think they lose trials. I think they lose trials. I think defense counsel win trials. How do you get that message across to your, particularly your important witnesses that your testimony is important but you're not bringing home the trophy here. I'm the guy that's got to bring home the trophy. Yeah, so that, that's a good question. And we had a case um, two years ago with a colleague in, in this office and um, uh, these plaintiff's attorneys had noticed, I think 12 to 15 depositions. And, and, and one of them was certainly our safety managers. So we knew that they were going to build up 
to deposing her at the end of the week. So they had done a, a decent job of laying that, of laying the foundation with the witnesses to sort of come to the eventual witness at the end who was a safety manager. And this safety manager was very bright, uh, very smart and attuned to the company. She had been there for a very long time. And it was kind of the same dynamic. She felt that she needed to be the one to throw the haymakers, right? And, yep. and that she needed to be the one to make it. When in reality, what we had tried to prep with her was, listen, we understand that this deposition means a lot to you. We understand that you want to be helpful. The biggest way you can be helpful is by sticking with the game plan. Yeah. And the farther you get outside of that game plan, the farther <laughs> you get outside of the of the responses and, and about the strategy that we have put together, the, the less that we can help you. Because we have spent at that point six months building up with our witnesses how we're going to create a narrative in this case. And you do not have to be the one to win the day. You win the day by performing in a way that we have collaborated with everybody on, on the same narrative. And I, it is one, I think, where it's our internal nature to be helpful, right? All of us, if we get handed a task at work or wherever, we just want to do the best we can and be helpful. And I think a lot of times, especially people up here who are Minnesota nice and who yes. are, they want to be helpful and offer and whatever, yeah. um, that can sometimes be a bad thing. And so it's, it's getting that across. It's also, I think, having a candid conversation upfront of the importance of, of your testimony and yeah. the fact that if you are stepping outside your box, so to speak, um, that can have ramifications, not just for you. We're not talking about you, Jane Doe, the witness. We're talking about the company and other witnesses in the company in general. So it's, I think, just having being more upfront at the beginning, but also making sure they understand that they are a part of a system and a concerted effort throughout the course of this case. And that's how they fit in, right? It's very rare. I agree yeah. with you that you need one witness to make the whole case. If you can have decent testimony and corroborated testimony from a lot of witnesses, it shows strength. And it also makes it so that that one witness isn't alone on an island. Yeah, I also think there's a lack of appreciation from the witness, which is which is one of my jobs, is to have them understand it, it's not just the words, it, it is the message, yeah. it's your body language, it's your demeanor, because man, I've seen some corporate reps that have really good on paper answers, but it's like, yeah, but you're, you're a jerk, <laughs> you know, you're falling right into this trap, you want to outduel this plaintiff attorney. And you're not really being like, you got to play the game. And a lot of that game is behavioral. It's emotional and it's, it's cognitive. And that's why I do what I do for a living. And I think, you know, based on our research, that's roughly 80% of the message. 80. I mean, that's, that's, that's well, the astounding. Shocking, the shocking thing. And I'm sure you've done this just as much as I have is you poll jurors afterwards and you say, okay, so tell me what you thought. And <laughs> yeah. they may say, yeah, he had a great claim. We just didn't like him. And didn't like him. That's so right. And 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 to the people outside of our business, they may think that is ridiculous. And and that questions right the justice system. What I would say is that is extremely real in real life in people who are in the courtroom and try cases. And that your likability and yeah. how you present um, is a huge factor. And and, and obviously the cases are important, but. But too many times have we seen people come back and they oh, say, yeah. you know, we just didn't like that person. We didn't think that they were believable or we thought they were just trying to fight tooth and nail. So we thought they were hiding something. And I think that that comes up in many times in post-jury research. 
Yeah, let, let's end on this note because I think this is an important topic. Yeah. And, and it, it's, an, it's a sensitive topic, but it's related to this, to this topic we're talking Go ahead. about. Go ahead. Um, the growth of the woman being the corporate rep. Um, I've seen a lot more emotional struggles there. And I think that um, because of the workplace challenges that women have faced over, over years and years and years, and, 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 and the things that they've had to do to get to that level and, and their careers, um, I, think there's a, I, I think there's a lot more emotion sometimes um, uh, behind that. And I have, I have noticed that um, uh, many of the, the female corporate reps uh, I, I've worked with, they come in hot. They come in sometimes even hotter than, than the males because they've been fighting a different fight than the many of their male counterparts in many, in, in many circumstances. And so I, I think when working with the, uh, the female corporate rep, I think uh, it's important for attorneys and people like myself to understand maybe some of the, you know, whether it be, you know, career barriers or career challenges that those people have had to go through to, to get where they're at. And now you have a plaintiff attorney coming in to try to take that away. That that's, that's a pretty sensitive, that's a pretty sensitive issue, huh? I, I think regardless of, regardless of gender, usually my first initial session with a corporate rep or a safety rep is just understanding their story. Yeah. And okay, how did you get to this executive position in the company? Yep. You will be shocked at how many, not only good nuggets you will find there for trial testimony, but you will also find, I think, a more in-depth appreciation of how that executive got to where they're at. And that, I think, lays into the psychology of that witness yes. and why they may feel emotional about one thing versus the other, right? And I think what you find across the board is there is a level of nearness and dearness to the company and the work that they've done. And none of them would have ever have thought that they would be in this position, training with you, an attorney, for five weeks before yeah. corporate rep depth. And so I think on that note, what I would say is, I think sometimes we, we miss that in, in our prepping of witnesses, that we don't take enough time to sit down, regardless of yeah. gender, race, whatever it may be, to just say, okay, how did you get to this point? Yeah. Who are you as a person? Not just the merits of the case and what we're going to yeah. say. How, how can we get your, you comfortable? And how can we also make it so that this deposition is your own? And that you are your own witness in the end. I think that is such a crucial part of, of prepping anyway. And the jurors love it. They want to see the person. They they want they to hear. It. They know, love getting it. over those. We had a we had a case. Um, we had a case uh, two years ago, where we sat down. We had that conversation, and we found this long string of Navy Army history in this person's family, and growing up in a, a military family, and how that shaped him to not just serve in the military, but then come to an executive position. And it weaved in such great trial background and testimony that, you know, it, it became a central part of our narrative for this witness. And so just slowing down, yeah. I think, and getting that background, it just paints such a better picture for the jury, especially when you get to that level. Totally agree. Okay. Last question. It's um, we're not doing football yet. It's way, it's entirely too early <laughs> and, we're, and we're not talking, we're certainly not talking about, um, Deshaun Watson. We're not going to do that. No. Uh, there, there may be a time and a place for that. Uh, not on this episode. Um, the All-Star break is coming up. All-Star break um, is coming up. 
I'm going to make an uh, listen. The the Vegas is betting uh, Yankees Dodgers in the World Series. Uh, I think I'm going to. I think I'm going to go ready for this. I'm going Subway Series Yankees Mets with the with the Yankees taking it in six. I do like two comments. I do like the Mets, so I would not sleep on the Mets if you're a betting person. I, yep. I, they are a good team, especially in that division, and I I can see them making a deep playoff run. My issue with the Yankees, listen, 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 I have All followed right. the Yankees and just so you know, and everybody home, fair disclosure, I am a lifelong Yankee fan. And so the, the backstory there is I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, where we don't have any professional sports teams. And I went to my very first baseball game with my grandfather who's now passed. He was a lifelong uh, twins fan. And so we had gone to that twins game and, uh, and wouldn't you know what? They were playing the Yankees. When we went, the Yankees absolutely crushed the Twins. And I said, <laughs> I'm not rooting for the Twins. I'm rooting for the Yankees the rest of my life. So that was when I was six years old. That's carried me now okay. to this long. Getting there, what I'm saying is the Yankees have had a string in these last, I'd say, decade where they have a really, really good team. And then they get to either it's a wild card game <laughs> or the playoffs. And they just can't get over the hump. Now, we can say what we will about the Astros. That's a source of frustration for a lot cheaters, of people. Cheaters, but, but cheaters, cheaters. They are going to need to be healthy, and their pitching staff is going to need to perform. You know, they spent all that money on Garrett Cole, and he absolutely sucked in the wild card <laughs> game last year. So, if they can perform at a regular season level, they're a very dangerous team. Will they get there? Will they stay healthy? That's another thing. But I, I do like them at least winning the division. So we'll see where that gets them. But Boston. It looks like it's, it may make a run at it as well. Oh, yeah. Well, listen, great having you on the podcast again. We'll certainly have you back. Hopefully, we want to do more panel discussions uh, in the later half of the year. So we'd like to get you involved with that. And let's make sure you and I uh, get on stage together soon uh, and do one of those speeches together at one of these seminars. Absolutely. And all, all I'd say for the folks out there is, you know, what, what makes this profession great is our ability to collaborate. And so yep. this is a big props to to Bill for for being on the for being on and creating this podcast and to all the folks in the defense bar in general. Um, keep continuing to corroborate, keep continuing to to reach out and, and to talk with each other. That's what makes this profession fun and and hopefully makes it a little bit easier for you. So thanks for having me on, Bill. This has been great. Anytime, Nick Roush, Litigation Psychology Podcast. This is Dr. Bill Kanaski. We will see you next time. Thank you.